Good morning, Refuge Church. Uh, for those of you who haven't gotten the pleasure to meet yet, my name is Paul McDade. I serve as one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm just so excited that y'all you've chosen to uh, gather with us wherever you are today. Um, my prayer is that you are well. Um, again, thank you for being here. We're continuing on in Genesis, uh, and a couple weeks ago, really a month or so ago, when I found out uh, that I was going to be preaching, I didn't even know what passage it was, so I looked at it, and when I saw which one it was, I was so excited. This is, uh, for me, one of the, I would say, the most in- impactful Old Testament passages uh, that I've ever heard, because I heard it explained really well um, a-, a few times, especially, I'm going to give a lot of credit to Tim Keller. I learned a lot from that guy, especially around this passage, so I'm super, super excited uh, to be uh, open in Scripture with you today, and specifically this text that we're going to be on, uh, just these nuggets of grace and the, the radical nature of the gospel that spread all throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. We're going to hit on one of those uh, today. If you're new with us uh, to, to Refuge Church, we do what's called expository preaching, where we take the Scripture, and we take passages of the Scripture, books of the Scripture, and we just walk verse by verse through it, uh, and that's what we're doing. So, I hope you're doing well. If you've been tracking along with us through Genesis, I hope you are doing well um, and that you're, you're making it okay. Uh, if you're just joining uh, or you've only, you've only been here a little while, I'm going to do just a quick recap of where we are to catch you up to where we are today in Genesis uh, 15. So uh, what we know is that God created everything in six days, and it was good. And Adam and Eve uh, walked in fellowship with God. Uh, and in comes the serpent who deceived Eve. They both ate the fruit, Adam and Eve. They got booted out of the garden. Man's fellowship with God was broken. We call that the fall, or I like to call it the rebellion. But God promised that one day a descendant would come who would crush the head of the serpent. Adam and Eve had two kids, Cain and Abel. Cain became super jelly of Abel, killed Abel because God accepted his sacrifice and not Cain's. And then we get some really weird stuff happening around these sons of God that came and had babies with the daughters of man, and we end up with these things called the Nephilim. It just gets super odd. Uh, Things were really bad. God decided that he was sorry he made man and decided to destroy the world by flood. Noah found favor with God. His descendants, after the flood, began to populate the world again. At one point, man even decided to build a tower to reach to God. God wasn't having it. He gave them all different languages. They gave up, scattered. In comes Abram and Sarai. Uh, God chose Abram to make a great nation. He tells him the whole world is going to be blessed through him. Uh, But Abram had to leave his home and his family and his land. Uh, And at one point, uh, they have an encounter with Pharaoh, and and he says Pharaoh that his wife Sarai was his sister, and it gets really sketchy there. Uh, And then we meet Abram's nephew, Lot. Him and Abram were pretty loaded with flocks and herds and tents, so they decided to split up. Lot chose to go toward Sodom. He gets attacked by this cat named Chedorlaomer. Abram and his men go rescue Lot. Uh, and this dude, Melchizedek, or as Scott calls him, Melchizedek, who was a priest of God, blesses Abram. Abram moses on. And then last week, Blake walked us through these promises of God to Abram, that Abram was going to have a son, and that the world was going to be blessed through this line, even though Abram was old and gross. Um, he did remind us also last week that we can trust the promises of God, just like Abram did, which brings us to our passage today, Genesis 15, uh, verse 7. So I'm going to jump into that. It's a long passage, 7 through 21, so bear with me as we go. And he said to him, being Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the land of of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him these, these things, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. 
But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they, are, that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your forefathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Hey, let me pray for us for just a minute uh, before we jump into this. God, I just declare right now, Father, my need for you. Spirit, um, illuminate scripture to us today, Father. Um, use your, your servant, your sinful servant, me, uh, to do that, Father. Uh, I declare my need. We declare uh, your need, or our need for you today. So, Spirit, uh, meet with us. Show us what you have uh, for us to learn from you today, God. Make Jesus' name famous through your scripture. Love you, praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So what in the world is going on here? Uh, the, the times I've read this, pa- this passage, it was just weird. Uh, if, when I think of it, it reminds me of like if Stephen King wrote a Disney movie. You've got like these flaming pots, right? These little flaming pots and torches floating in between animals sawn in two. These butchered animals and flaming torches. And let's just see what we can unpack here. So here's what we know. God made a bunch of promises to Abram, right? Uh, he was reminded, Blake reminded us last week that Abram made a promise, uh, God made a promise to Abram that he was going to have a son. And in this passage today, he, he continues his promises. He said he's going to give him land where his family will multiply and his descendants will multiply. See, God had promised Abram back in chapter 12 uh, that he was going to make Abram into a great nation. And part of that promise includes an actual location where he uh, would, would uh, live and where his family would begin to multiply uh, in Canaan. God was saying to Abram, if you trust and obey me, I will bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation, a bunch of people, more than the stars that you can count. And I'm going to give you a land to possess. And how how does Abram respond? He says, that sounds pretty awesome, but how can I trust that you're going to do that? In verse 8, he says, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? We just saw back in verse 6 that Blake covered that Abram believed God's promise about having a child. So Abram believes, but yet he's still sort of questioning God. I would say he believed mostly. And it reminds me of uh, the father in Mark chapter 9 that has the son with the unclean spirit. And Jesus says, anything is possible if you just believe me. And you remember what the the father said? Yeah. He said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I don't know about you guys, uh, but that's very relatable for me, wrestling with doubt in the midst of my belief. Um, I think that's what was happening um, with Abram here. Jesus was patient with that father that we read about in Mark 9, and God is patient with Abram uh, in this this section as well. And this entire passage that we're going to cover today is really God answering that question. How am I to know that I will possess this? So let me ask a question. How do we normally enter into agreements with people? 
or businesses or whatever it may be? What are some ways that we normally enter into agreements with people? Yeah, a handshake is one one, yeah. Uh, sign a document sometimes, we'll sign things. Sometimes you'll take an oath, you know, you raise your hand, you promise to do this, maybe put your hand on the Bible, promise. There's all different ways we enter into contracts these days. Back then, it was a little bit different. Let's look at verse 9 uh, of our section. He says, bring me a heifer three years old, God saying to Abram, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things, cut them in half, and laid them half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, he drove them away. In Hebrews, this is what is known as the covenant of the parts. One of the ways, and it's the ways people would enter into agreements back then. It was, a, it was a covenant ratification ceremony where they would sacrifice the animals, they would divide the carcasses in two, lay them side by side with a path down the middle, and they would walk through uh, the, the uh, sacrifices. And what they were doing is they were acting out the consequences of if they broke the covenant. Cutting the animals in two warns the other party about the consequences of breaking the covenant. Basically, they're saying, may I become like these animals if I do not keep up my end of the bargain. Yeah, we see this in other parts of Scripture, too. In Jeremiah 34, uh, here's what it says. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Failing to meet the terms of this covenant meant you were agreeing to become like these two animals and you would be left out there for the vultures to snack on. Imagine if that's how we entered into covenants today. If we had to do that, that would be pretty weird. At your wedding, you know, you're lighting a unity candle, they sing a song, and then they bring out the animals for you to sacrifice and cut in two. That would be a little bit odd. I'm refinancing my home right now, you know? Like, they, they mail you the documents, and what if they, like, mailed you a, a goat? Yeah, your, your documents and your goat are outside, and you sign it, and then you cut the animal in half, and I, bet, I imagine it was a really bloody scene. But maybe a little more effective, you might not want to, you might be slower to enter into some agreements if you had to... <laughs> commit to sacrifice yourself if you didn't hold up to it. But here's what's interesting. Abram was very familiar with this type of agreement. If you notice, it doesn't say that God told Abram what to do. It says Abram went and got the animals and cut them in half. He knew exactly what to do. It's how they entered into agreements back then. He knew how to arrange them. And it also sounded like he had to wait a while. So after he did this, it sounds like he was waiting because it said he had to shoo the birds off and they would come down. So it wasn't like he cut them in half and then things progressed from there. He, he waited a while for uh, things to happen. And then it starts to get even weirder. Let's look at verse 12. It says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. This isn't like a literal darkness. It didn't get dark around him, but he fell into this, this state of, of dreadful darkness. It was a darkness of the soul, a darkness of the heart, and it was dreadful and it was terrible. Uh, I heard some commentators say that it was like a thick smoke that came upon him that he, and he couldn't see, but it was like a, a thickness and a dreadfulness of the soul, a darkness of heart. It was a spiritual darkness. And in this darkness, God spoke of dark things. This is what God said to Abram in, in verse 13. He said, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He said, Abram, your descendants are going to be slaves. 
All of these things I'm promising you, I promise to do them, but your descendants will go into slavery for 400 years. He's alluding to the time that uh, the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt before the Exodus that was to come. But then after that, in verses 14 through 16, God says he will bring judgment on that nation, being Egypt, and they will come out with great possessions. God will deliver them. And Abram, you're going to die at a good old age. God keeps his promises. Remember the theme from last week. Yeah. And then it gets even more interesting. Verse 17, it says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. I read this a bunch of times and I just never really knew what was going on here. Uh, these are the same words that we read in Scripture that talk about the, like the pillar of smoke and the fire that, that the Hebrews followed when they le- left Egypt. Those are the same words used, used to describe this fire pot and this flaming torch. It's the same words that, used, that are used to describe the smoke that encircles Moses when he's on Mount Sinai. The same thing we see when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and a cloud comes upon him. It's the same word. It's the, it means the presence of God, the, his Shekinah glory. Um, The KJV, the King James Version, calls it a smoking furnace, which I think is probably a little bit better translation of it, Um, because this is not a cute little teapot and like your your Bath and Body Works candle we're talking about here. This was was intense. It was severe. It was painful for Moses, I'm I'm sorry, for Abram to look at. He was in this darkness of soul, and he was seeing the, the glory of God coming between these pieces. Uh, I heard one guy say that um, at that moment, it was like a searing bolt of lightning appeared in front of him, and it held its shape, shooting sparks and smoke out. Could you imagine seeing lightning, just how intense and and terrifying that would be? That's what this was like for Abram. This was very uncomfortable. He he would have been, if we see in other parts of Scripture, he would have been terrified when people come into the presence of God. It's hard to find human words to really describe what this was like. The Bible usually mentions fire and smoke, though. And Abram's still in this dreadful trance. He's still, it never mentions that he woke up or he came to when he saw this. So he's still in this darkness of soul. Um, I've talked about this before because it's really fascinating to me. Um, when, when the scripture talks about uh, when people encounter the presence of God, it's not a pleasant experience. It's not, it's not, oh my goodness, look how awesome this is. They're scared to death. They actually think they're going to die. Um, this darkness of soul that Abram was feeling was because he was in the presence of God. There's a guy named Rudolf Otto that, that coined this term mysterium tremendum, but basically it's this overpoweringness of the majesty and the might and the sense of one's own nothingness in the presence of a holy God. That's what Abram was experiencing uh, when, when he was in, in the midst of the presence of God. When we sinned against God, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, we became incompatible with God's nature. And so that's why we see in like Exodus, when, when Moses is talking to God, he tells Moses, you can't see me and live. So he hides Moses and he passes by and Moses gets a glimpse of, of like God's backside, basically. And in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah has a vision in the temple uh, and he sees God, and of course the temple fills with smoke, Isaiah says, woe is me for I am lost. I am ruined. I'm undone because he is in the presence of a holy God. This was not a, a pleasant experience for Abram. But in that moment, here's what's so cool. God answered what Abram was thinking. When Abram said, God, how can I trust you? God was answering that in that moment. How do I know, God, that you're going to do what you say you're going to do? God shows Abram. 
When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. God answered that question. He said, I promise to bless you, Abram, and bring salvation to the world through you. And if I don't do what I say, may I be torn to pieces just like these animals. I will be cut off. My immortality will become mortality. My power will become powerlessness. My infinity, his infinite nature, will become finite. God was making this commitment to Abram. If I don't keep my end of the bargain, may I become just like these animals. And you can imagine if Abram is sitting there hearing and understanding what was going on, um, he probably thought, you know what, of course I can trust you. You're God. You've done everything you said you're going to do. You created the universe. Of course I can trust you. That's, that probably wasn't really the problem for Abram in all of this. The real problem for Abram was probably his part of the bargain, right? What about me? That was really his question to God. Honestly, I'm not worried about you keeping your end of the bargain, God. What about me? Abram knew he wasn't going to be able to keep up with this. Do you remember the fiasco in Genesis chapter 12 with Pharaoh? Abram sees his little smoke show wife, Sarai. He's like, Abram, uh, uh, Pharaoh's going to be into you, so let's pretend you're my sister, so that way they won't murder me and take you. This is pretty sketchy, right? Abram knew he was going to blow it. He knew he couldn't keep up his end of the, of the bargain. See, with this covenant ratification ceremony, usually what happens when they cut the animals in two, both parts of the party walk through. So in this situation, Abram assumed he was going to walk through with God. Both sides are saying, if I don't keep up my end of the bargain, may I become like these animals. And if you don't, may you become like that. Sometimes if a king was entering into an agreement with somebody that served the king, that person that served the king would walk through, not the king, sometimes. He's the king. I mean, he's not going to commit to die. He's the king. And, and so in this situation, this is astonishing what God did. That, the, that God walked through these parts, and he didn't make Abram walk through. God walked through alone. He said, I promise to bless the world through you, and if I don't do what I say, may I be torn to pieces just like these animals. But here's what's awesome. He said to Abram, if you don't do what you say, may I be torn to pieces just like these animals. God saying, I will be cut off. My immortality will become mortality. My power will become powerlessness. I will become finite. God said, may I be cut off if I don't do my part? And God said, may I be cut off if you don't do your part? Is that not an amazing picture of the gospel? Golly, the first time I heard this, I was like, that is incredible. I never would have seen this just on my own, reading this, this passage of scripture, because there's so much to what's going on here. But it's such a beautiful picture of God, what he did through Christ Jesus. You've got like the, the law happening here, God asking Abram to do these things. Here's what I need you to do, Abram. And if you do these things, if you make these sacrifices, if you, if you commit to what I'm asking you to do, there'll be great rewards for you. That's just like the law, right? But God, knowing Abram could never live up to his end of the agreement, chose to take on the consequences if, if Abram failed. If any part of the party breaks the agreement, God would take on the consequences. This is exactly what Jesus has done for us, right? Oh, man. God's requirement is perfection. Adam and Eve blew it right from the beginning. And even if we had a chance, which we don't, we couldn't keep up with this. We couldn't, we couldn't meet all of the requirements of the law. We were doomed even from the beginning. Only God can satisfy God, right? Jesus, who was God, held up his end of the agreement. He fulfilled the law. He took on the consequences of our failure, our failure to keep up our end of the agreement, our failure to, to meet the requirement of the law. And at the cross, Jesus was cut off from God. The immortal became mortal. The infinite became finite. 
The unblemished, spotless lamb was marred beyond recognition. He became like those animals that were divided into because we failed to meet our end of the, the agreement. And in return, we were giving, given all the credit for his work. Man, that's good stuff. Finishing up this passage, it said, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hizzites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, and any other sites there happen to be nearby. So what, right? So, so what does this mean for us, this Old Testament passage? I mean, obviously there's a lot here. I mean, this is the gospel. This is the gospel laid out for us in this Old Testament scripture. So I think the first thing that, that really uh, impacted me as, as I studied through this is that it, it taught me that we're in much worse shape than we realize See, what we generally like to do as humans is compare ourselves to others because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Kind of this scale idea that if, if, if I'm better than you, because I'm, I'm the ultimate judge here, right? It makes me feel better about my, myself. It, especially right, right now with all that's going on. I mean, think about it. Uh, regardless of where you land on these issues affecting society right now, because you've got to land on one side. You can't be for something. I mean, you've got to be for or against. I think that's kind of where we've decided we've got to be, right? Uh, most of us tend to look down on the people we disagree with. Unfortunately, God compares his performance to ours, not ours to each other. We're weighed compared to a holy God, not sinful man. And we fall woefully short. I fall dreadfully short. And even our best works are marred with sin. That's why Isaiah says that our good works are as filthy rags. Uh, Tolian Chavijan, who's a, a pastor I like to follow, posted this this week. Uh, and I think it's really relevant to uh, understanding our sinful nature, but also, um, also the holiness of God and, and where we land. He said, until we see something of ourselves in Derek Chauvin, who is the cop who killed um, uh, George Floyd, he said, until we see something of ourselves we, in Derek Chauvin, we will continue to conclude that our deepest problems are outside our own hearts. That our deepest problems are outside of us rather than in our own hearts. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. I'm going to read that again. Until we see something of ourselves in Derek Chauvin, a murderer, we will continue to conclude that our deepest problems are outside of us rather than in our own hearts. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Knowing this about ourselves should make us more gracious to one another, not less. We're more like the people we look down upon than we are like a holy God. So that means when someone sins against us, or even worse, when someone disagrees with us, we don't have to shut them out. We don't have to become... Fall, or fall into this cancel culture mentality where you get one, one shot and you're out. This is a pretty awesome Jesus juke, but thank goodness God didn't shut us out when we failed to meet his expectations. When we disagreed with God, he didn't shut us out. We can have that same grace with others. What God has done for us means that we can have grace with people. We can listen. We can seek to understand. And even if they're wrong, we can have grace. But... What makes the gospel so scandalous and even way more scandalous than we'll ever comprehend is that even when we do fail to do this, when we do shut people out, 
there's still grace for that. God doesn't shut us out. There's still grace when we fail. It's the Romans 8, 1, right? It's the, there is no condemnation. If you're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. God is not a God of first and second chances, right? God's a God of a second Adam who came to do what we couldn't do. That same radical grace means that the most vicious murderer can repent and be saved. The thief on the cross next to Jesus was saved. Did he earn it? Absolutely not. Jesus earned it for him. That same radical grace applies to us today. I like this Tim Keller quote. Uh, He said, we're far worse than we ever imagined and far more loved than we could ever dream. Yes, we're in really bad shape, but the promises of God don't rest on our performance. Thank God they don't, right? I mean, read Romans. That That was pretty much most of what Romans covers, or really any of Paul's letters, he really hits on this. Salvation that leads to eternal life is based on faith and not, work, not our works. Our works are a result of our faith. And even that faith, Ephesians 2.8 tells us, is given to us. Because if we had the faith, if we came up with the faith, it says we would just boast in that. Hey, look how much faith I have. No, even, even the faith to believe was given to us so that we cannot boast. Salvation is not based on the strength of our faith, it's based on the object of our faith, right? It's based on Jesus as that object of our faith. Our salvation is not a cooperative effort. So here's what it means for us. We get to get off the performance treadmill. We can't do it. We can't keep up. You can't do it. Give up, right? Or give it over. It's probably a better way to say it. Give it over to Jesus. He did. Jesus can and he did perform for us. And not only are we spared from the consequences of breaking our covenant with God, but we get God's credit for his performance. We get the credit for God's performance. And in Christ Jesus, what he did for us through his life and his death and his burial and resurrection, we get credit for his performance for us. We get adopted into the family. We get clothed in the robes of righteousness. We become co-heirs with Jesus because we're adopted into this family. And we receive the inheritance that Jesus deserves. God gives it to us through Christ Jesus. It's what's called the great exchange. Pastor Scott always does this, right? The great exchange. It's, it's scandalous, but here's what it says in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It said, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God in Christ Jesus was given to us, was imputed to us, through what Jesus did on the cross. So the pressure's off. Pressure, you can breathe out, right? You don't have this this weightiness to live up to. It's why Jesus said, let me take the burden. My, My yoke is easy. My burden is light. The burden of keeping the law, of keeping the commandments is off of us, and it was put on Jesus. That's why Christianity is so much different than every other religion. Every other religion says, what can I do to get to God? And Christianity is a God that came to us, that condescended to us, in Christ Jesus. It's not about making bad people good. It's not. It's, that's religion. Christianity is about making dead souls alive in Christ Jesus. If you're listening today and you don't know Jesus, there's not a list of things you've got to do. He just says, the scripture just says, repent and believe. It doesn't say, do this, do this, get these animals, sacrifice them, cut them in two, 
walk through them, got to meet your end of the bargain. No, repent and believe. Repent means that you acknowledge that you've been placing your hope for salvation in other things. Repentance means you're changing your God. You're rejecting the false gods that you've placed your hope in and placing your hope in the one and the only one who can save you, and that's Christ Jesus. And for those of us in Christ already, rest, rejoice. The work is done. The work is finished. The agreement has been fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Rest today. Let me pray.